You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, bodacious bros, babes, and buds who bask in bizarre brilliance. This is Good Job Brain, your weekly quiz show and offbeat trivia podcast. Today's show is episode 216, and of course, I'm your humble host, Karen, and we are your spunky, splatoon, sputtering, and spewing spoonfuls of spookiness. (laughs) I'm Colin. (laughs) And I am Dana. (laughs) And I'm Chris. (laughs) Without further ado, let's jump into our first general trivia segment. Pop quiz, hot shot. I here have a random Trivial Pursuit card from the 2016 uh, Genus mm. edition of Trivial Pursuit. And you guys have your barnyard buzzers. All right, let's answer some questions. Here we go. Blue Wedge for Geography. Which country's flag features a cedar tree? Ooh. Ooh, Chris. Lebanon. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> I only that is literally there is a song called Cedars of Lebanon, and that's why. <laughs> oh that's wow! It. Yep, it says here for the Lebanese, the cedar symbolizes freedom and hope. Wow, good mm. job! That is a that's, slum you know, dog question. That's, that's how you get. Yeah, that's how yep. you get, get points. Next question: Pop culture pink wedge. What was the name of the symbol used to identify the singer Prince? Oh, the name of the symbol. The symbol oh, has a has yeah. a name. I, don't I feel know. like this is probably like we're going to hear it and we're going to either going to be like, oh, yeah, or it's going to be some weird, funky Prince thing. And we'll be like, OK, all right. Of or course. both. <laughs> Do you guys think it's like a, an actual real human English word or is it some princified made up term? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Um, I think I feel like I've read things and it was like an unpronounceable symbol. So we just call him the artist. But the answer is love symbol number two. Uh, uh. I feel like he switched back to being called Prince. So I don't feel like we should need to know this. <laughs> <laughs> I object. Uh, yellow wedge for history. Which war did not take place in the 20th century? The Spanish-American War, the French-Algerian War, or World War II? Did not, not take, take place. place in the 20th century. Yeah, Chris. I think that I think I believe that Spanish American War was 19th century. So I'm gonna guess that. Well, you are correct. Yeah. Spanish American War happened in 1898. Yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah, pretty close. All right, Purple Wedge. Which former New York Ranger enforcer was once an intern at Vogue magazine? What a strange hmm. question. New is York Ranger Enforcer? Yes, yeah, this is a hockey Rangers? question. Okay. What's an enforcer? It may not surprise you to hear. Uh, you sometimes have players who, among their specialties, is being able to fight. If someone messes with your star player, you need someone who's going to go out there and kind of enforce the, the, the rules. And it's okay, if they, it's okay if they get thrown out of the game for throwing a punch or something. Oh, interesting. And and what was this? It was an enforcer who was... Intern at Vogue magazine. This is very specific. Vogue magazine. Okay. If you can even name one New York Ranger. Any of them. Any New York Ranger, you know. 
Go for it. Mario Lemieux. I don't think he played for the Rangers. Well, then I guess that was a bad idea. The answer is Sean Avery. Okay. 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 All right. Green Wedge. Which living fossil is harvested by the millions each year so its blood can be used to test new medicines? This is wow. Okay, sorry. Living... You gotta, you gotta start over again. Okay. Which, in quotes on the card, uh, which living mm-hmm. fossil... Mm-hmm. Living fossil. ...is harvested mm-hmm. by the millions each year so its blood can be used to test new medicines? Not a plot to a, a sci-fi horror movie. Uh, Colin. I always hear the term living fossil used with horseshoe crab. So I'm going to say horseshoe crab, <laughs> but I don't oh. know. If it... Oh, okay. it is horseshoe crab. It says it's baby blue blood binds with any bacterial contamination. Oh, huh. huh. that's, well, that's I need a okay. follow up on mm-hmm. that. Uh, last question on card. Orange wedge for sports and leisure. Forgive my pronunciation. Pam Postema, P-O-S-T-E-M-A, Pam, last name, Postema, became the first woman to assume which role in Major League Baseball? Colin. I will guess umpire. You are correct. And here I have a bonus question. Our Patreon listener question from our purple Patreon pledgers. This is from Brett Frazier from Anchorage, Alaska. Oh, he says that he's a longtime fan listening since 2012. And so he's got a, a, a question about Alaska for us. It says, Alaska is the only state with territory above the Arctic Circle. Mm-hmm. What is the significance of the Arctic Circle? As in, like, what defines the Arctic Circle? Oh. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We hear about it all the time, but what exactly yeah. counts as the Arctic Circle? Is it? It's related to the uh, position of the sun. Yes, maybe. I don't know. Does it have something to do with bears? It's... Oh, I I'm wish. asking because Ar- doesn't Arctic mean bear or something like Antarctica mm-hmm. means no bears? Am I? Is it the? I mean, is it the spot on the on the the globe where the the sun is always visible? Ding 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 ding. Yeah. You got oh. it. Oh, is that it? Yeah. The line itself denotes the southernmost point, Brett says, on the Earth's surface where there is at least a full 24 hours of sunlight on the summer solstice mm. and then 24 hours of darkness on the winter solstice. So so mm. everything above the Arctic Circle also has that, but that's the circle denotes like the, mm. the southernmost. Where the 24 hour. Mm-hmm. Yeah, where it begins. Mm-hmm. Brett says there's a big footnote when he says 24 hours of sunlight specifically means that the sun remains entirely above the horizon for 24 okay, hours. Okay, that was my next okay. question. Yeah. So not okay. like is it, it any dips, part or okay, and then all right. there's some okay. light. It's like it has to be completely above the horizon, which to me is nuts. Like I can't even imagine. Mm-hmm. They say it messes with you or they say it can mess with you. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you Brent for your Alaska trivia. Yeah. Guys, it's Halloween season. Time for spookiness. Time for sneakiness, uh, <laughs> tricks to go with all that creepiness. Candy. So everybody grab your jack-o'-lantern bucket. Let's go trick-or-treating on today's Halloween episode. Okay, so I have a story for y'all. 
Um, I'm in a book club and we read books about creativity by various famous artists. And over the summer, we read um, Zora Neale Hurston's autobiography. Dust, mm. It's called Dust Tracks on a Road. Do you guys know who Zora Neale Hurston is? Yeah, yeah. A Harlem yeah. Renaissance. Yeah, she's mm-hmm. an author. She's big in the Harlem Renaissance, like which was a period in America between the 1920s and 30s, where there was this explosion of Black creativity in New York. It included artists like Langston Hughes, Louis Armstrong, Bessie Smith. So she was part of this, and her most famous novel is called Their Eyes Were Watching God. And yep. I read that in college. I liked it a lot. So she's mostly known for fiction writing, but she's also a big deal in the anthropology world. Her mentor um, was Franz Boas, who's called the mm. father of American anthropology. Azora Neale Hurston's focus was Black people in the American South and the Caribbean. She recorded folklore and music. You could hear all these things on the Library of Congress's website. Anyway, so reading her book, and there's a passage in it that really caught my attention. It goes, of my research in the British West Indies and Haiti, my greatest thrill was coming face to face with a zombie and photographing her. This act had never happened before in the history of man. I mean, taking taking of the picture. I said all that I know on the subject in my book, Tell My Horse, which has also been published also in England under the title Voodoo Gods. I've spoken over air on We the People on the subject, and the matter has been so publicized that I will not go into details here. But it was a tremendous thrill, though utterly macabre. And I was like, what? What? What are you talking about? You can't leave me hanging. Like, you're the first person to take a picture of a real zombie, but you're tired of talking about it. So whatever. <laughs> you're just going to move on. And, you know, and I was like, I must look this up. Um, but I did not because I needed to keep reading the rest of the book before book club meeting. <laughs> so, so like, and since I read that, I would think about it in the car or while grocery shopping. Like, I really need to look that up. Like, Zora Neale Hurston was the first person to take a photo of a real zombie. What, what does this mean? So I did look it up. Uh, and I will tell you about it. Here we go. Zora Neale Hurston, the first person to photograph a real zombie. The concept of a zombie comes from Haitian folklore. There's a dead oh. body. It's re- oh. yeah, it's reanimated through voodoo or magic and becomes like a mindless slave. It's enthralled mm. to the person who brought them back and they Got never it. get tired. And that's super spooky kind of in and of itself, like losing your free will or being a dead person yeah. and coming back to life. In 1936, Zora Neale Hurston went to Haiti to do anthropological research, um, and she spent quite a while documenting voodoo ceremonies, songs, medicines. She was really, really talented at integrating herself into local culture. She would like know all the facts. She'd know all the songs. A great anthropologist. A big that's nerd. why she was a big nerd, and that's why you know she got where she was. Go- she was yeah. really good at anthropology. So she was able to befriend practitioners of voodoo and she really got to know them and understand about their potions. And basically what she found out was this is how zombies are made. Somebody's given a potion and it kind of wipes their personality and makes them easy to control. It makes them look like they're dead. And then when they come back, their minds have kind of been wiped and their personality has gone and now they'll do whatever. So she was taken to meet this woman named Felicia Felix Mentor. And all of the people in her town knew that this was a zombie. This Mm. woman had been declared dead in 1907. So almost 30 years before she had been declared dead, there was a funeral for her, her husband, family, friends. Everybody was like, she's dead. The Haitian government was like, this woman is dead. But then decades later, she reappeared on a road outside of the family farm 
the like her brother and her husband were like, yeah, this is Felicia. Her. This is her. <laughs> but she didn't have a memory anymore and she was kind of out of it. So they put her in a hospital and that's where she was living when Zora Neale Hurston came to visit her. And this is how she described meeting this zombie. The sight was dreadful, that blank face with the dead eyes. The eyelids were white all around the eyes as if they had been burned with acid. There was nothing you could say to her or get from her except by looking at her. And the sight of this wreckage was too much to endure for long. So she took some pictures of her. Uh, one of them was published in Life magazine. And so basically the theory was this. In Haiti, they don't embalm people and they don't bury them in the ground. They put them in like a mausoleum. So mm. sometimes kind of a bad voodoo priest would, would uh, poison someone and make it seem like they were dead. And then they, uh, they bury them or like put them in the mausoleum. And then they come get them at night and revive them <sighs> and then take them to these slaves on a plantation. And apparently that, that happened so to people. They were making zombies and they would have their memories all gone. That was her theory. That's that's creepier to me than like a supernatural Just straight zombie, up you zombie. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. Zora Neale Hurston wanted to find out what the potions were to make a zombie like really documented. But that summer she started getting stomach issues and then she was like, I think I'll stop looking into this so she's just in case yeah so nobody knows how zombie is made or nobody has written it down to like uh cleanse the palate because my god what a dark what a dark spooky story to find out i see why she didn't talk about it but i think she should have anyway here i have a couple questions for you guys about zombies and these are more modern Ooh, day right. zombies okay. um so Night of the Living Dead is considered the first modern zombie movie, but it doesn't actually call the reanimated cannibals zombies. What are they called in the Night of the Living Dead? What do they call them? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, I don't know. Uh, I thought it is a monster name you know. Ooh. Yeah. Uh, is it like mm-hmm. ghouls? Yes. Ghouls. Oh. Ghouls. Oh, hey. Uh, yeah. Okay. Okay. Where did the word zombie come from then? Oh, so that one, the etymology is probably West African. Like they're different. Oh, okay. And it kind of means like God, fetish, undead. Like it, it all kind of circles around, but the, the art of doing it seems to be Haitian. And then it, it. Um, spread from there. Night of the Living Dead is based on I Am Legend, which is about what kinds of monsters? Ooh. Karen. Based on the Will Smith movie that has a dog in it, I think they're vampires. Yes. Yeah. yeah that's right. They're like weird, creepy vampires, not like, you know, continental European royalty vampires. Why did the fact that there was a dog mean that it had to be vampires? Oh, no. It was just, a, you know, my, my extra tidbit. That it happened to have a dog. I gotcha. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything is filed under dog in Karen's memory. <laughs> so she's like, okay, that movie yeah. with a dog. That's the top, about vampires. top index, <laughs> right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in the 2009 movie Zombieland, which animal-based disease causes the zombie apocalypse? And this is like oh. a very 90s, 2000-ish seeming disease. Chris. Mad cow disease. Mad cow disease. Uh, <laughs> totally 90s. Remember when everybody was going to get mad cow disease and we were all going to die? It was fun times. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Last question. In the zombie book World War Z, who are the Lamos, which is an acronym <laughs> spelled L-A-M-O-E? Oh, L-A-M-O, the Lamos. What are Lamos? Is it the slow zombies? Good guess. It's the last men on earth. So it's the people oh, who are like oh. intense preppers 
who like think that they're the last people, last of humanity. I was trying to figure out what the A could be in last minute, but it's not. It's it's, it's actually like, L A. Last. Yeah, last. Oh, oh, that's good. Right, oh, that's right. great. Good job, y'all. Well, I I have a bit of I have a palate cleanser from all of this sort of zombie nastiness. Let's talk about um. You, well, okay. So here's the thing. On on Good Job Brain, we uh really enjoy discussing things that we love. And I feel like we're really missing negativity on this show. And we really don't <laughs> talk enough. We don't do enough segments about things Hating that we on? actively dislike or hate. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, we've talked a lot about Halloween candies and treats and things like that. I just kind of got thinking about like, well, what was like the worst part of, of, of Halloween? <laughs> and, you know, the worst part about Halloween as a kid, when you're going out trick-or-treating, was, you know, going up to a house, you know, you're putting in the work, you're going up to a stranger's house, you're going through the hole, you're ringing the doorbell, you know, having to smile and everything like that, and just kind of getting skunked, you know, like, again, I, I'm putting in a lot of effort here, I'm trying to get a pillowcase full of candy, this, this stuff has to last me until like at least Christmas morning, you know, uh, you know, and, and it's like you, you get like an apple, now I don't think you get apples anymore, you know what I mean, no, um, right, no. because of the safety thing, but in the 80s, 90s, like sometimes yeah. you get an apple, box of raisins, like, box of raisins, box of raisins what are you trying to do it's like what 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 are you trying to do for my health that i have a metric ton of candy in my pillowcase right now and you're gonna put in the one box of raisins and that's that's gonna that's gonna set you on it's not happening (laughs) and it's like i have plenty my parents would give me raisins whenever i want this you know did you miss the memo about what this was um Everybody has their favorite candy. You know, honestly, very few people are like they go out on Halloween. If you're a five year old kid and you hold out the hold out the sack and somebody tosses in some good and plenties, and you're like, "Oh yeah, I was hoping for good and plenty." It's got what kids love. It tastes got that bitter taste, and it looks like a Tylenol. That's what I'm looking for. To me, I think the worst. I'm sorry. I know there's many people out there who love this and are very offended. Was the quintessential bad Halloween candy um, that was. Necco wafers. Yeah, that that to me was the no prize. That's like that's like anti. It's anti candy. It's just like having some tums. Seriously, just why don't you just give me a piece of chalk? Why don't you just do that? Yeah, Yeah. it's like a a a sort of a little pounded flat like round wafer of like like sugar and some sort of binder to sort of hold the (laughs) sugar together. But they're not even that sweet. Like they're it's not even just like eating sugar. It's like it's actually a very mild kind of sweetness. Mm. So it Mm -hmm. is. Colin said chocolate. Tums. Yeah. But less flavorful than Tums, I would say. Tums is a better treat than a Necco wafer to me. Yes. And you get this and you still have to grit your teeth and say thank you, you know? And so... And, and by the way, I have data. If you go to candystore.com, they pull together customer surveys and other sort of data. And this is updated for 2021. You know, people's the, the worst Halloween candies. Uh, actually, actually, why don't everybody guess? Yeah, 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 yeah. is definitely on the list. All right. I, I will defend this one first and I'll put myself out there and say I happen to like this one, but I know that candy corn is very unpopular. So I, I'll say candy okay. corn might be up Candy there. corn. Ding. Number one answer. Number one wow. answer. 2021. <laughs> candy corn. Most hated Halloween candy. Anybody else want to guess one? Good and Plenty is on there. Necco Wafers are on there. 
Sweethearts are not on there. Oh, no, excuse me. Well, actually, Smarties are on there. Oh, that's... They're not the same. They're not the same, but they're similar. Yeah. Uh, I'll also, I'll tell you. Um, Black Licorice, uh, which we certainly have a history with here on Good Job Brain. Good and Plenty. Uh, Tootsie Rolls. Tootsie Rolls, not considered uh, oh, yeah. great Halloween candy. Uh, Mary Jane's. <laughs> I love um, Mary what Jane's. Are Mary Jane's? Well, I, I'll tell you, it is molasses taffy and inside mm-hmm. is a strip of peanut butter. Oh, I feel yep. like I called those something else. Uh, peanut butter kisses? Did you call them peanut butter no. kisses? Because those are on there too. And that's those <laughs> little chewy molasses candies with peanut butter inside. People don't like them. Uh, those little wax bottles of so, quote unquote soda. Oh, really? I like them. Yep. They're so neat looking. Uh, and circus peanuts. Circus peanuts is on oh. there as well. Oh, yeah. Circus um, peanuts. I like circus peanuts. The three best for 2021 are Reese's Reese's peanut butter cups. Okay. Oh yeah, for sure. And then M and M's and Skittles are the no, okay. two and three. But Necco Wafers fans, they're out there. I know they're out there. They've actually had a tough time uh, recently because actually, so it was, it was right after uh, we went on hiatus in uh, the beginning of summer 2018. Uh, Necco, the company, filed for bankruptcy. Oh no! Uh, and mm. was was bought out and then shut down by a venture capital firm. Um, and then people at that moment started panic buying Necco wafers, <laughs> <laughs> and sales of Necco wafers increased probably for the first time in decades uh, temporarily. <laughs> they are back now. You don't have to panic buy them anymore because they came back. Safe to buy Necco wafers again. <laughs> We're stockpiling them. Here's the thing. So I decided. Well, I hate them, but let's uh, you know let's really look into the history of Necco wafers and see. If there's something interesting there that can at least make me appreciate them, uh, you know, for what they are. Mm-hmm. Hate yeah. research. <laughs> maybe maybe I'll fall in love. Let's find out. Let's find out. So in 1847, 1847, Boston, Massachusetts, a recent immigrant from England named Oliver Chase. He was 26 years old. And he created a new invention, and it was called lozenge cutting machine. Oh, yeah. Here's a here's a little buzz in uh, single question Ooh. quiz for you guys. To what originally did the word lozenge refer to? Oh, it does. It does not mean a, like a cough drop. Like, what would the originally where did lozenge come from, Colin? I know lozenge as like from the world of art is like it describes uh-huh. like a shape of something, like a, like a very kind of you know oh. often you know sort of yes. A lozenge originally is a geometric shape. The diamonds that are on playing cards are lozenges, a traditional diamond kind of shape. But it's a skinny rhombus, and that was originally was a lozenge. And so, um, so how did that get applied to you know cough drops or throat medicine? Yeah. Uh, well, cough drops themselves are actually extremely old. Apparently, the Egyptians were making cough drops out of honey and citrus and herbs and spices and whatever they had in 1000 BC. By the 1520s, you had uh, the word lozenge or its equivalent in various languages, meaning a flat diamond shaped tablet that you would dissolve uh, in your mouth. The, the original ones were, were diamond-shaped, like diamonds on playing cards, and they, they were flat. They were sharp. Yeah, stabby. They were, and you can still go out and get candies in this traditional shape today, most notably in the Nordic countries where they eat salty licorice. <laughs> because you can go... You can go get those, like a tin of them, you open it up, and they're all diamond-shaped, like diamonds Ooh. on playing cards, just little flat diamonds. Uh, so back to Oliver Chase and his lozenge cutting machine, which actually made, by this point, 
was making circular lozenges, but he worked at a pharmacy and he would make throat lozenges and he was hand cutting them. Uh, so very much in keeping with the spirit of the times, it was 1847, it was America. He was like, let's build a machine and automate this process. So just imagine like a pasta roller with the two, you know, uh, cylindrical sort of rollers yeah. squishing it, but there's like circular cutouts on the cylinders. Got so it. when you roll it through, it punches out circles. And so you have to stand there and crank it, but it cuts down on a ton of the work and it produces these perfect little machine-made circles. So he starts out by using these for medicine, but very soon he also just starts producing just candy. You know, originally just a mixture of sugar and cornstarch, just enough cornstarch to hold that sugar together and release them under the name of Hub Wafers. Now, does anybody want to take a guess <laughs> at why they were called hub wafers? That was the original H-U-B. trade name. H-U-B. Like why do they call them that? Oh, like like hubcap, hub yeah. So, yes, but not for the reasons that you're thinking. Uh, because hub was a nickname at that time for the city of Boston, um, which was sort of considered the hub of the universe, the hub of the solar system. Yeah, like where everything yeah, was happening. Okay. So hub wafers um, were a sensation. They were cheap. They were cheap, cheap, cheap candy. They were rugged uh they were portable you know kids could carry around a tube of them i mean they, they sold them in the same tube that you, you, you see today it's sort of the wax paper to surround them but additionally at the time they had this very elegant fancy almost futuristic look to them you know what i mean because they were these perfectly round machined little discs um and so there were ads at that time suggesting that like you know fancy ladies set out a tray of them for tea time and because they weren't overly sweet that it, it was the sort of the perfect meal finisher sort of a thing, or a kid would carry him around. So uh, uh, Oliver Chase's uh, lozenge cutter is, is generally considered to be the first American candy machine wow. and the launch of the modern American candy industry. Prior to this, you know, candy was hand pulled, labor intensive, yeah. like artisanal, like boiling a bunch of sugar in a big cauldron. And, and this machine industrialized candy and it was and it sort of was the spark of the idea of like oh how do we do this and and very very quickly a lot of other companies in boston spring up making candies you know in factories with innovative you know machines mm. jumping ahead quickly uh by the time we hit 1950 there were nearly 150 candy makers in the boston cambridge area wow um that's wow. tons and it, it was certainly i mean it was not maybe it was not the hub of the solar system but it was absolutely be, had the become candy. the hub of the the candy world uh there was a street in cambridge that was known you know historically known as a confectioner's row because just <laughs> all up and down this street was just everything was a candy maker there is one left today Wow, uh, and it no, is the, that's so uh, sad. on the on confectioner that's still on confectioner's row. It's the junior mints factory <gasps> where all the oh. junior mints are made. Uh okay, so Oliver Chase, he's printing out these these lozenges. Oh, what's up? Can I ask? Remember we talked about the Great Molasses Flood yes, in Boston? Yes. Is that related to this? No, apparently not. not really. and, and I did look at this because I'm like, oh, it must have been the Molasses Flood. No, because the Molasses <laughs> Flood was from a distillery. They were distilling yeah. the molasses into alcohol. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So apparently, I mean, it may, it may be related in some way, but I mean, you know, in the sense that Boston <laughs> was a major, you know, city for Production, manufacturing yeah. food products. But yeah. So uh, 1866, <laughs> 1866, a couple of uh, a couple of decades after the invention of the lozenge cutter, uh, Oliver's brother, Daniel, invents another machine. And this machine can use vegetable dye 
to print words onto these big flat oh. lozenges, which lead to the invention of conversation oh, hearts. hearts. Sweet yeah. hearts. Yes, the hearts. Nice. Now, and of course, and of course, those taste pretty much just like Necco wafers. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't get too deep into this because we're, we're veering off of Halloween and into Valentine's Day. But I did want to mention, like, originally these, these sweethearts, which um, they, they were printed on these sort of big flat not that big that go in your mouth but like pretty large flat lozenges and the messages on like today we have these little tiny hearts that can only fit like kiss me you know yeah love short, you short little messages, <laughs> yeah, right? yeah. Text, yeah. text me no not even because it's like it is even shorter than that you know like send nudes or i'm not really sure what's on these <laughs> it's, it's short very short two-word yeah. messages well guess what they had a lot more space in the 1800s because here's some of the more popular messages that they would print on these things Things. Here, here's one. <clears throat> How long shall I have to wait? Pray be considerate. Whoa! Imagine the whole. You get the the throat lozenges all on there. Here's another very popular one. Literally, you get this candy, and it's like, please send a lock of your hair by return mail. These are all creepy messages. I'm exactly. Like, and they're also, yeah, it is. It, no, it's calling the police. It's the, yeah. It's the stend nudes of the 1800s. Yeah. It's, it's like, it's Necco, it's Necco wafer sliding into your DMs, but it's printed on a, a big flat candy. Yeah. So, um, so that's how that got started. And so, in, so, uh, finally, so this, so 1866, this happens, and it's not until 1901 that Chase and Company merges with two other Boston area candy concerns uh, to become the New England Confectionery Company, NECC Co. or NECO. NECO. New England Confectionery Company. Now, for a while, what's interesting is that they had hub wafers and then they rebranded them to NECO wafers, but they kept both of them on the market. And there's Hmm. like, they were in slightly different packaging. Like literally there's ads that are like hub wafers. They're in wax paper. Necco wafers are in a transparent paper, but it's the same thing. And they all say <laughs> Necco on them. I guess the, the hub wafers branding must've been very strong. Yeah. Um, they didn't want to yeah. give it up. Yeah. And uh, old. So, so here we go. So in 19, in 1912 and ad, you might be wondering like, what do these things taste like in 1912 In 1912 listed all of the flavors saying that they were the quote, good old fashioned ones that every youngster likes. So kids listening, <laughs> to the show get ready for a, a who's who of all your favorite flavors uh, of candy uh we have of course clove um cinnamon licorice sassafras i like that's lime true lemon peppermint wintergreen and chocolate um the current flavors are uh clove that's the purple one is clove yep really um yes yep uh cinnamon cinnamon is white as cinnamon yep licorice the black ones the black negotiation of licorice uh sassafras has been swapped out for orange um and then lemon lime um and uh wintergreen is in there and then also we have uh chocolate the brown ones are are ostensibly chocolate flavored they all taste the same to me maybe because they're covered in the powder of the other ones so they all just taste the same. <laughs> uh so as you might imagine the hardiness of these things definitely led them to uh be used uh sometimes in the in the military as well and sure. so apparently sure. there's there's stories out there that hub wafers were informally you know popular with civil war soldiers um 
But in around, right around the turn of the century, right around 1900, the U.S. Armed Forces began officially issuing soldiers uh, candy, uh, both huh. for like morale reasons and just like, you know, get them some more calories. Uh, <laughs> right. And, so, right. And, they, and they often picked uh, Necco wafers. In, in World War II, Necco wafers mm. were in soldier rations. You can ship them around the world. Yeah. They have, they have mm-hmm, a lengthy mm-hmm. shelf life. Heat doesn't do anything to them because <laughs> they're not food. Cold yeah. doesn't do anything <laughs> yeah. to them. Like nothing yeah. happens. Of course, the soldiers all eat Necco wafers for like five years and they come back home and they keep eating Necco wafers. So keeping the popularity going. It is said that in the 1930s, Admiral Richard E. Byrd, who was famous for exploring the Antarctic, um, took uh, 2.5 tons of Necco wafers um, on a two year expedition to the South Pole. One pound of Necco wafers per week per man in the South Pole. 2.5 tons. (laughs) One pound a week. And they're still there today, as far as I know. Uh, so what's weird is, so again, I keep referring back to the fact that there are uh, Necco wafer fans out there. And in 2009, you know, again, after like obviously declining sales from the heights of when Necco wafers were like very popular. Yeah, you um, mean as Civil War soldiers died out, you mean? Yeah. <laughs> um, they were thinking Neko basically had a new Coke moment in 2009 because they were like, oh, you know what? Let's 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 market Neko wafers as a more health conscious candy. Let's swap out all the artificial colors and flavors and everything is going to be all natural. Uh... Um, they had to eliminate the lime because they couldn't come up with a good natural mm. sort of green color. And <laughs> people hated it. I mean, the people who still like the original, like, oh my God, what did you do? Um, and I mean, they, they very quickly, like within a year or two, just had to switch it all back to okay all the artificial stuff is back in (laughs) we're sorry um so the sad thing here is that uh when it was shut down in 2018 neko was the oldest continually run candy factory in the country they had moved but it would they'd run continuously um it was certainly the oldest continually produced mass-produced candy in its original form it never changed its form it since 1847 and they never stopped making it until 2018 and it's kind of hard to pin this down, but people have said like Necco wafers to that point were the oldest continually produced product, like mass wow. produced product of any mm. kind that never changed ever uh, in America. Yeah. The the old Necco factory, sort of the iconic Necco factory that had their water tower was painted like a, a, a pack oh, of Necco cute. wafers. Oh, uh-huh. uh, it's no longer the case, uh, oh. they, but they, they're now home to, to a biotech firm because the biotech firms are kind of what replaced a lot of the, the you know, candy making companies in Boston, Boston, <laughs> big biotech city. Uh, and they had to spend uh, $175 million converting the facility because they just scraped decades of sugar off of the wall. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I guess um, they decided that was the good deal. It was worth it. It know, was that, worth that it property. doing it. Yep. Yeah. Uh, must've, they must've gotten a good deal on the factory. So the company Necco is now gone. Um, but the, the Spangler candy company owns mm-hmm. the brand and reintroduced Necco wafers in 2020. So there's no, no need to panic buy Necco wafers for now. Your gross weird candies are still being made uh, for the time being. Colin, actually, you said that you're you like candy corn. I do. I and do. number I, that's I, number I, one on the un, most unpopular candy. Corn. I like candy corn too. You know what? One time I I was in some shop and it was like a novelty food shop and they had big candy corn. Have it, you seen this? Like it no. was. I mean, it was. It, <laughs> I it, it was like. It looked like it probably weighed half a pound. It was probably like three inches across in the base, like the size oh. of a small apple, maybe. And okay. 
we bought one. And I was like, oh, I like candy corn. Maybe I'll like this apple sized candy corn. And I have to say, it was like, I took one bite and I was like, oh, oh no, I can't. I'm like, that's too much. Like, it's the, the, the flavor enjoyment did not scale up at all with the size. Yeah. I had the same thing too. Like, I think when I was a kid, they had um, gummy stuff was really cool. So there was like <laughs> yeah. a big vanilla gummy, which is already like weird because vanilla is not really a good gummy flavor. Rat for Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I bought the vanilla gummy rat. And I no. Oh my God. I like <laughs> threw up afterwards. It was just too <laughs> vanilla, too much gummy, too much volume. A, a real life-size rat made out of gummy. Oh. Bad. But sorry. So to bring up uh, candy corn. I always thought candy corn was like, oh, because it's like corn, it's fall, orange, so it's Halloween-y. Turns out candy corn was just normal candy. And at that time in America, it was was still an agricultural economy. And so many people worked in farms. And so in that time, the candy makers would make farm-related candies to appeal to the kids who live in the farm. Because that's where most of the kids were living. The the candy corn used to be called chicken feed. It was to, you know, like candy cigarettes or whatever. It's like fake fake chicken feed. But like, haha, That's more interesting. Yeah. That's more interesting to me. It's nothing to do with Halloween or or Thanksgiving. Or I thought maybe like you could build up the corn to build... all the put it all to together whole corn really yeah that's what i thought uh, but no it's just it was like fake chicken fun candy chicken feed you know you feed your oh, chickens like you can that. feed your kids yeah you know colin i know why the big big candy corn would not have appealed to me because what i like about candy corn is just biting it at exactly the, the layer getting the perfect little nibbles and you totally. can't do it with a huge one you just like I do the same thing I bite same off thing. a huge chunk of the <laughs> yellow. <laughs> yeah no. i don't know like if there's a big candy that i would that i would eat it's like reminding you too much of how bad the thing you're eating is like yeah. for you you know what i mean yeah. it's like well it's, said. It, yeah yeah it's like only a monster would eat all of this and it's like oh no i ate all of it i must be a monster <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> all right we're gonna take a quick break and we'll be right back when you need mealtime inspiration it's worth shopping kroger where you'll find over thirty thousand mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie and no matter what tasty choice you make you'll enjoy our everyday low prices plus extra ways to save like digital coupons worth over six hundred dollars each week you can also save up to one dollar off per gallon at the pump with fuel points more savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping kroger worth it every time kroger fresh for everyone fuel restrictions apply traffic jams tailgating pile-ups oh the joys of driving how could it get worse the federal government wants to have a say in what you drive that's right the biden administration's epa is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today don't let washington become your backseat driver protect the freedom of driving your way visit energycitizens.org paid for by the american petroleum institute and we're back. It is our Halloween spooky show about mysteries and creepiness and spookiness. It makes me think of spooky manner, mystery, something tricky, something is a, a foot. Clue is one of my favorite movies, and we talked about it on the show a lot, starring <laughs> Tim Curry and like that whole genre of like Agatha Christie. I want to introduce 
you guys to Mr. Willard Huntington Wright. In the turn of the century, he was an art critic, a literary critic. He was the literary editor for the LA Times. He profiled Edgar Allan Poe. And in the 1920s, he was kind of on uh, down on hard times. People thought he was sick, but really he just had like a cocaine addiction. And so uh, he yeah. was, right. yeah, he was uh, recovering from a, a drug addiction and he was confined to a bed for, you know, long periods of time. And so he kept himself busy. And that was during now what people call the golden age of detective fiction or the golden mm. age of detective mystery. He just consumed and read like hundreds of detective fiction. And he was like, hmm, I am a writer too. And it seems like I can write a good mystery as well. And he did. Um, he actually, he he tried his hand at writing detective fiction. Um, now, because he was like a pretty established and serious guy in the more like elite art and literary circles, writing detective novels was kind of a downgrade, an embarrassment. And so he wrote detective stories under a pseudonym called S.S. Mm. Van Dyne, which sounds like ah. a, a Seinfeld, like a fake Seinfeld character. S.S. <laughs> Van Dyne. And he actually found quite a bit of success from his detective fiction career. He eventually made way more money with that than he did with his actual like literary critic work. He also studied and wrote essays about crafting crime mysteries. He came up with 20 rules of detective fiction. He, he drafted like, here are the 20 guidelines and rules that every good mystery detective fiction novel should abide. And I'm going to read some of them to you. There's another guy, too, in England who came up with like a Ten Commandments to detective fiction kind of around the same time. Uh, but this is this is S.S. Van Dyne's 20. And some mm. of, and I'm going to read some of them. And they're, they're pretty they're pretty good and they're pretty clever. So number one, the reader must have equal opportunity with a detective for solving the mystery. Mm. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All the clues must be plainly stated and described. Us readers have a chance to. We're in it together. We're also playing mm -hmm. detective as well. Number two, mm -hmm. no willful tricks or deceptions may be played on the reader other than those played legitimately by the criminal on the detective himself. Okay. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Number three, there must be no love interest in this story. Oh, really? Yeah, no love interest. Uh, he says to introduce a more is to clutter up a purely intellectual experience. Okay, I see who he is. Okay. Number four, the detective himself, the main investigator, should never turn out to be the culprit. Okay. 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 Uh, number seven, there simply must be a corpse in a detective novel, and the deader the corpse, the better. That's, what? The that's what he the said. Yep. The, now, by deader, does that mean more long dead or more gruesomely I'm, dead? I'm, yeah. I'm guessing like more clearly dead. dead. Like, like oh no, he's like lying on the ground with his eyes closed. He must be dead. But like, we're, yeah. versus Sad. like, oh, he's he's been impaled on a yeah, like, a, okay, like, okay. like, like somebody definitely in a dead coma. Maybe they're not going to wake up and tell you the answer or something like that. Uh, okay. So he says here that no lesser crime than murder will suffice. 300 pages is far too much of a bother for a crime other than murder. 
So he's kind of like, <laughs> if you're invested in all this stuff, like it's got to be the, the victim's got to be super it's dead. Got to be the all big right. one. Okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. All right. Uh, number 10, the culprit must turn out to be a person who has been in the story. Can't be like all of a sudden it's so and so that we didn't know had to be. Mm -hmm. It has to be, you know, part of the narrative since the beginning. Um, I'm mm -hmm. going to skip number 11 and come back to that. Uh, <laughs> number 14, uh, the method of murder. And the means of detecting it must be rational and scientific. Can't be a, a secretive potion that doesn't exist okay. in the real okay. world um, yeah. or some sort of machine that takes a Something long time. Too, yeah, hand wavy. Okay. Exactly. Number 17, a professional criminal must never be the culprit. Oh, funny. It should be someone who has kind of never really been in that situation and they decide mm. to kill. So note that I skipped number I skipped number 11 and I will. I detected that, Karen. Yes, yeah. you're a very good detective that detects. Uh, <laughs> so, number 11, I will read now. Servants such as butlers, footmen, valets, gamekeepers, cooks, and the like must not be chosen by the author as the culprit. He says, it is too easy solution. It is unsatisfactory. It makes the reader feel like uh, it's time has been wasted reading this. <laughs> so obviously, number 11 refers to the kind of the trope that we all know is that the butler did it. Right, mm -hmm. right. We hear it all the time. The butler did it. That's, oh, that old trope. Turns out this mystery novel is the butler did it. Guess how many times the butler actually did it? Not many, <laughs> not many. Where did it come from? Where did the butler did it come from? Um, we hear it all the time, and it's from an American, what uh, regarded as the American Agatha Christie. Her name is Mary Roberts Reinhardt. She wrote a story called The Door, and this is credited as the piece of fiction that has the butler was the culprit exploded onto pop culture. Um, before that, there's like one work that had the butler did it, but that's it. There are no other mysteries that had the butler <laughs> do it. That was enough for it to be the trope. And, and as a kind of a final coda, uh, wrapping this up, Mary Roberts Reinhardt, she eventually settled a city, Bar Harbor, Maine, which, which I've been before. My parents mm. took me there for a vacation. They ate lobsters. We were kids and we did it because we <laughs> thought it was gross. So the, her her estate now is part of the Wonderview Inn um, and the Looking Glass Restaurant. Mary Roberts Reinhardt, you know, she wrote about the butler did it. But actually, in real life, her chef tried to kill her. That was, oh. was crazy. This is from, yeah, the <laughs> oh, Wonderview website. Okay, all right. So after hiring a butler, rather than promoting her cook, her cook got upset and, you know, perhaps were drinking and maybe he was upset and not in the right mindset, pulled a gun on her. Pulled the trigger, the gun jams oh at like, God. you know, point blank, and she escapes, and everybody else in the household wrangled, and it was just chaotic. Her almost butler almost did it. Her, Her almost, almost butler did, did it. Almost did it. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Always a bridesmaid. <laughs> so that is the origin of the butler did it. I mean, she was right not to promote him. There's like yeah. some anger issue. Yeah, in retrospect, good call. <laughs> yeah. Are you looking for a podcast that your whole family can enjoy that asks the deep philosophical questions like, do trees fart? If you are, then you'll love Tumble, a science podcast for kids. 
I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Join us as we explore stories of science discovery, from butts to animals, dinosaurs, astronomy, and everything in between. You'll love these stories, and you'll learn something new. Find and follow Tumble Science Podcast for Kids wherever you get your podcasts, or at sciencepodcastforkids.com. Colin, you're up. Where are you taking us to? All right. I want you to imagine with me, we're going to be creating our very own haunted Ooh, house. Okay. And I've got, I've got only one rule here, all right, for you all is I absolutely in no way want you to think outside the box or push your creativity. I want this to be the most unoriginal, uh, non-groundbreaking haunted house ever. I want us to hit every trope we can okay okay Okay. all right and along the way here we will uh get some questions in and some trivia for you all here we go all right so we're coming up on our haunted house now of course for maximum creepy fog effect we're going to be using just a buttload of dry ice everywhere i've got i've got dry ice (laughs) behind some some fake tombstones on the front lawn dry ice of course very popular for haunted houses and we see it on tv movies a lot pretty easy to work with you can get like a fancy dry ice machine blower but you can also just drop some chunks of dry ice into a bucket of water and get largely the same effect get your buzzers ready here i've got a question for you all what is dry ice Ooh, I think you guys all buzzed in there. Uh, Karen, I think you were maybe first. What What is dry ice? I, I believe it's frozen carbon or, or solidified carbon dioxide. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. Dry ice is... And it could be dangerous. Oh, yeah. I mean, yes. I mean, if you lock yourself in a room with it. You are correct, Karen, first of all. Yes, dry ice is frozen solid carbon dioxide and it is super 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 cold <laughs> and and it's dangerous in the sense that if you touch it with your bare skin yeah you can create some you know freezing damage on your skin and it's dangerous in the way that if as chris alluded to if you're in a confined space and you get too much uh as it converts to gaseous carbon dioxide like any other gas if it replaces the oxygen in the room you're not mm-hmm. going to be uh, feeling too well so you know the cool thing about dry ice as far as haunted houses <laughs> Ah, it's our most commonly seen example of something that sublimates something that sublimates uh, is a substance that can pass directly from a solid to a gas without being a liquid in between Mm -hmm. and that's why dry ice is really cool carbon dioxide can exist in liquid form uh, but just not at anything approaching our normal uh, environment and pressure pressure and temperature yeah so you know you can get uh, co2 down to you know liquid um, uh, but it's got to be like five times atmospheric pressure you got to have the temperature right um you know you might see compressed co2 in like fire extinguishers for instance um where you can't get the pressure high enough to keep it in its liquid form but as soon as it hits the normal atmosphere it turns immediately into gas um Mm -hmm. if you have any dry ice that you need to handle um it's actually really funny putting it in the freezer is really not going to do much to it because even your freezer is still warmer than the yeah it it will still sublimate even in your freezer because it is not liquid water. It will still keep right on sublimating. Perhaps yep. counterintuitively, you will actually keep your dry ice longer if you put it in just like a thick, you know, foam styrofoam container with a lid. 
it'll it'll oh. stay it'll stay preserved longer than if you just put it bare into your freezer. I've had to handle so much dry ice during the pandemic because you know we, we've stopped like going out to the grocery store and just started ordering stuff. So it's like, oh okay, well I can order ice cream, I can order this and that, and oh. like you know that's one of the things they talk about. Like um, when they started talking about like you know Gold Belly and shipping food all over the country or whatever, it was like, oh well, it must be really tough to ship ice cream. And they realized like actually like shipping ice cream is like the easiest thing to ship you just throw it like just like a small piece of dry ice into a into a a nice styrofoam cooler with a lid on it and you can ship that anywhere and it's it's gonna be it's gonna be frozen like a rock for like a week or or more yeah okay so we've set the scene with the fog we've got the fake tombstones all right we've no haunted house worth its salt is going to be without a copious amount of uh cobwebs i mean you know fake cobwebs um Colloquially, just be flexible with me here. Colloquially, loosely, what is the difference between a spider web and a cobweb? Sort of just Ooh. historically uh, in well, English. Oh. Uh, Karen, Karen, I think. Spider web is where a spider lives, and cobweb is an abandoned web. Mm. You got it just right. Yeah. Oh, wait, no, really? Yeah. yeah. Oh, because I'd always, I'd always heard that referred to as like, you know, collections of dust and things like that. And sort of. If you are the kind of person who makes a distinction, and I, I really want to stress, I really want to <laughs> stress here that <laughs> yeah, many people yeah. will use the term cobweb to cover active spider webs, inactive spider webs, clean, dirty, whatever. But, but historically, kind of colloquially, as I say, a spider web is a web that has a spider living in it. It's a working web, catching insects, it's clean. And a cobweb would often be an abandoned web that has started to collect dust and dirt. And so it oh. accumulates, looks kind of more cloudy, fuzzy. Yeah. Now, as I say, uh, this is not a hard and fast rule. And it looks like that it comes from an older term for a spider, which is uh, adder cop. And the cop in adder cop, meaning head, adder cop meant poison head. And so it was just a really kind of a very quick jump from there, from the adder cops web to a cop web or cob web. All right. I have an audio question here for you guys. So we're moving in. We're moving into our into our trope filled haunted house. We need some music here to set the scene and really get the mood correctly. So I have a little audio clip here. Listen to this clip. I know, oh. I know without asking that you have all heard this sample of mm-hmm. music before. Yes. Uh, iconic. Yeah, it is. It, it's certainly uh, from today's vantage point, it is an iconic piece of organ music. I will give you that much. Uh, for <laughs> one point, one point, I want you to please tell me who is the composer of this piece of music. You can go big. And for three points, you can tell me not mm-hmm. just the composer, but also the title of this piece of music. Anyone care to take a guess or confidently tell me the answer? Karen. I think it's Beethoven. It is not Beethoven. Okay. That I don't know. <laughs> it is, in fact, Johann Sebastian Bach. That's right. Uh-huh. That JSB. JSB, our man. Mm-hmm. That piece of music uh, is the Toccata and Fugue in D minor. We need to clarify here. That is one of Bach's um, Toccata and Fugues in D minor. Toccata, I learned, uh, comes from the root for touch or to touch. And the idea is sort of it's alluding to the, 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 the uh, masterful oh. touch on the keys 
views of the uh, person <laughs> okay. performing this piece. Yeah, I, I hope I don't need to tell you, Karen. It was, of course, used in Fantasia, uh, among many other places. That was, in fact, a lot of the scholars of this piece of music that that being used in Fantasia was, in no small part, really amplified its popularity. Yeah, oh. yeah, yeah. Okay, I think we've covered the 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 big three bases at least for me. We got the fog, the cobwebs, the music. You turn off the lights; it's nice and dark. We go into the house. We're gonna see some glow in the dark stuff for sure. You gotta have something glowing yeah, in the yeah, dark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you gotta have yeah. something glowing in the dark. Now, um, <laughs> did you know that when you see a modern glow in the dark item, and I'm talking just that you know classic greenish sort of fuzzy glow that we all are yeah. familiar with, you are witnessing quantum mechanics in action you are seeing a quantum physical reaction in a very very cool way most modern glow-in-the-dark toys and props and things are either uh, chemiluminescent luminescence based on chemicals uh, or phosphorescent originally they did use uh radio luminescent things for like watch (laughs) dials and things like Mm -hmm. that that's that they learned you know thankfully they learned uh that that is not the good kind of radiation that you want to have uh on your skin or near your skin or (laughs) on or near your children um yeah Yeah. the ionizing radiation you 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 don't want that a great example maybe today the the classic (laughs) prototypical example of chemiluminescence that we all know would be a glow stick you know great yeah. old little glow sticks right you, you crack them and then you shake them up and um it's it's luminescence triggered by two chemical two or more uh when the reaction completes and it's out of juice if you will you can't yeah. get it to glow again phosphorescence is the kind of glow in the dark that we associate more commonly with chargeable glow in the dark, reusable glow in the dark. If it fades, you just hold it in front of a light or put it out in the sun for a little bit and it'll start charging it with energy that it gives you the energy back over time. And certain types of materials can do this over and over and over and over again. All right. Phosphorescence is very closely related to fluorescence. Okay. We, we know that term. Uh, we're probably most familiar with fluorescent markers. Day glow paints. Yeah. The, the the term day glow is actually a trademark term of the day glow company. Phosphorescence and fluorescence are so closely related that it really comes just down to how much time the light gives off when it is triggered. All right. Mm-hmm. So day glow markers, fluorescent markers, they really are glowing. They're not just especially bright. They're not just really intense colors. No. They really are chemically fundamentally different from other types of pigments and dyes. Atoms, you guys know what atoms are. Atoms are surrounded by electrons. And broadly speaking, the electrons want to sit at specific energy levels, okay? You know, distances away from the center of the atom. If you have the right materials and you send the right kinds of energy, photons in this case, light at the right wavelength at certain materials, you can temporarily excite these electrons, some of them, to jump up levels. They'll jump up a level or jump up a distance. And they'll hang out there as long as you're charging them. They will continuously at the same time. They want to drop back down to the lower energy level, right? When they drop back down, they, of course, have to give back some energy somehow, and they will give off that energy in the form of a photon. So as the fluorescent pigment or ink or paint or whatever you have is receiving normal daylight, it is, in fact, returning light to you on a slightly lower wavelength than the light coming in. It's not just reflecting. It is glowing in the daytime. It is literally day glow. Yeah. 
if you turn the light off, uh, it stops immediately. Because there's no light to. Cl- That's oh. right. Because there is no light to to charge up the 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 very specialized that pigments. Quickly. That's right. That's right. Where the line between fluorescent and fluorescence is, very broadly speaking, is really just at the point that we can notice it holding on to that energy after we take away the light source. Okay. Oh, mm. I see. That's the basic behavior here under fluorescence and phosphorescence. Black lights. You guys are probably familiar with black lights. Another great yeah. haunted house UV. staple. Mm. That's right. The the a black light is the same phenomenon, but built around pigments that are responsive only to light in the UV range. The discovery, or I should say, the perfection of black light paints really led to, yeah, a whole just cottage industry of specialized posters and art. I learned that the invention of blacklight paint uh, is attributed to two brothers, Robert and Joseph Switzer of Berkeley, California (laughs) in the 1930s. Yeah, they got really interested in naturally fluorescent and phosphorescent chemicals and basically went out, how can we make this a thing? How can we generate our own paints and pigments and things like that? Uh, They went on to found the Day Glow Corporation, um, which- Good for them. Which (laughs) really was- all of the first commercially available black light paints and fluorescent paints. All right, so here's where it gets really cool to me, the phosphorescence. Same basic principle that we just talked about, but in phosphorescence, in just the right materials, just the right pigments, when the electrons get bumped up to this higher level, they also have their spin changed. Now, it's beyond the scope of the show to explain what that means, but spin (laughs) is a special additional property that electrons can exhibit, have, and be induced. And in phosphorescent materials, they get into a special state where the spin is, quote, forbidden, okay? The transition, the transition back down to give up the energy and drop back down to their desired base state is so hard to model that it can only be modeled in a quantum sense. It can be modeled probabilistically. And all of this is a fancy way of saying that it's so hard for them to drop down to their lower energy that it takes a really long time. Uh, The harder it is for the electrons to drop back down, the longer that material will glow and they have glow in the dark materials that can glow for hours and hours and hours and hours now as opposed to you know minutes before so this really is one of these just everyday wonders of the world around us that if you want to have the most concrete example of a quantum (laughs) uh, uh, mechanic interaction just look at that glow in the dark skeleton that might be uh sitting in your closet poor electrons man (laughs) they just want to go home yeah we just keep we just keep pumping up with refuse to let them go where they just be where they want to be stop (laughs) frightening me and and for what stars on the ceiling yeah Yeah. highlighters (laughs) i had those i had the stars on my ceiling as a kid Mm -hmm. oh man cool so yeah there's a lot of science that went into our trope filled haunted house uh i hope you had no original reactions or no original feelings other than yep i've seen that before that's a haunted house 
Uh, well, it and- makes me appreciate it more. <laughs> yeah. Once we went on a camping trip and uh, one of the little kids decided that he wanted to eat the contents of his glow stick. So he broke it, you know, full <gasps> in half. And, uh, and, and I just remember him having a whole lot of green glowing stuff all over his mouth. Oh, and my God. Inside his mouth and stuff like that. He's fine. <laughs> <laughs> he just glowed, no, for, like, a while. He just glowed for a while. Glow. I wasn't there for that, Karen. I was not there for that. <laughs> <laughs> and frankly, even if I was, I don't yeah. think anybody would have let me observe it. <laughs> I wasn't that curious. I was yeah. curious, but not that curious. These are the these are the questions we ask on Good Job Brain. Yeah. <laughs> and that's our show. Thank you guys for joining me. And thank you guys, listeners, for listening. I hope you learned a lot of stuff about NECA wafers, about real life zombies, about dry ice and haunted house tricks, and who done it? The butler did it. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and on all podcast apps. And on our website, goodjobbrain.com. This podcast is part of Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to other shows like I Know What Scares You, uh, Movie Therapy, and Food with Mark Bittman. And we'll see you guys next week. Bye. 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 Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.